grab a seat. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We'll be in John chapter one, fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will be in the first chapter as we kick off our Christmas series, uh, jumping into uh, a few things we'll be talking about in the month of December. Before I jump into the sermon though tonight, I want to take a minute to give you an update as we have from time to time throughout the bizarre year that we have had here uh, and kind of let you know where we are. Um, and so no, no major changes to announce as much as to uh, kind of help some of you understand uh, there have been some announcements by the state of California, by the county of Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles. Uh, and at this point, it is very clear throughout those announcements uh, that churches are still able to meet. They've recognized that right. They've recognized that ability. Uh, and so we as a church are going to continue to do this. Uh, if we hear anything different, we'll, we'll be the first to try to let you know. Uh, but that's the first piece. And then the second piece is we are just watching the news. Some of you are watching as closely as we are uh, on different court rulings, different things that are happening out and about. Uh, and so we are looking for opportunities to continue to move forward in this pandemic pandemic, that eventually we would get back to a place of normalcy, uh, perhaps even meeting inside, things like that. Uh, but that is down the road, and we will let you know when those things come. I want you to remind you uh, of our approach since the beginning of this thing. And our approach has been, we are not going to go further than the government guidelines allow, but we're not going to lag behind them. So, so in other words, we are committed to submitting to the governing authorities as it tells us to do in Romans 13. Uh, and yet we're not, if we see windows where we can move forward as a ministry, we will be doing that. So for now, uh, we continue to be outside. We continue to have masks, except during the sermon time. If you've not been with us during the sermon time, you're welcome to take the mask down if you're comfortable, then put it back on when we worship at the end. Uh, for now, that is the approach we're going to take. And if there are changes, we will be the first to let you know. Sound good? Cool. John chapter one. Yeah. John chapter one. Uh, we're going to jump in tonight to a Christmas series. And here's the question I want to begin. Uh, as we think about Christmas, as we think about the text that we're going to look at this evening, here's the question I have for you. How would you describe God? If someone asks you that question, what's God like? Tell me what God's like. Tell me what God's like. Tell me what he's about. Like you believe in God. What's that all about? Uh, and here's what I suspect. I suspect there's some of you here tonight, uh, maybe even some of you listening online, who aren't even sure what you'd say to that question. Maybe you don't even believe in God. You're just visiting tonight, checking this out. But if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, and you're asked the question, what's God like? What's God all about? How would you answer that question? I think some people would answer with like the big theological words, okay? So the big theological words, if you kind of know like biblical theology at all, are these three big words. It's that God is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. God is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. And all three of those things would be true things about our God. Maybe others of you would answer differently. You would start to describe God with adjectives like this. You would say that God is holy. God is loving. God is good. God is kind. God is gracious. You would say those things. In fact, I've even asserted before that if I had one word to describe God from the Bible, that word would have to be the word holy. Like the angels in heaven are crying out about God. They're not saying love, love, love. They're not saying power, power, power. They're not saying grace, grace, grace. The angels in heaven right now are crying out to God, holy, holy, holy. If I would pick one word, that would be it. But maybe others of you would use different words. Maybe others of you would look more at the functions of what God does. He's the creator of the universe. He's the savior of the world. He's the hope of the earth. So there's a lot of different ways we would describe God. But here's what I want to try to do for us this December. Here's what I want to try to do for you starting this evening. I want to give you a way of describing God that the Bible uses to describe God. Like, again, I think there's a lot of words we could use to describe God in the scriptures. But here's what the scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. I've shared this verse before. It says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his being. So in other words, here's what the Bible has to say about how you describe God. Like ultimately, it's going to say, if you look at the sun, if you look at the sun, what you'll see is the radiance of God's glory. Like in other words, God is glorious and he radiates that through his son. He radiates that through the person of Jesus. And then it says that Jesus is the exact representation of his being. If you sit and think on that for a moment, here's what this is saying. Like if you were to ask the Bible, let's put up that question again. How would you describe God? I think based on this verse, we would have to answer with one word and one word alone. How would you describe God? Jesus. Jesus is how you would describe God. Not with some abstract concept, not with some big theological word, but with a person, with an individual, with Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation of God's being. That the Bible is not interested in you thinking of God as this abstract idea that's out there, this interesting concept that you can't get your mind around. What the scriptures give you is not an idea about God, but a person who you are to look to. And every time you look to that person, you are to identify who God is through the prism of what Jesus showed us. So so here's ultimately what I've come to believe. And here's what we're going to talk about throughout the course of December. Like if you want to understand God right, if you want to have a biblical way of thinking about God, you need to have what I'm going to call this month a Bethlehem-shaped theology. A Bethlehem-shaped theology. Meaning if the way you describe God could be used to describe a God that wasn't born in Bethlehem and living as a human being like Jesus Christ was, if the way you describe God does not include the incarnation and how that shows us about God, you may have a picture of God. It's just not the Bible's picture. The Bible is going to give us a picture of God. And that is ultimately, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, going to be shaped by Jesus Christ, born as a baby in Bethlehem, born in a manger. The scandalous myth message of the Christian faith is that the God of the universe stepped out of glory into a human body of a baby child. And I want us to think about how that shapes our view of God tonight. I want us to think about how we might formulate in ourselves a Bethlehem-shaped theology where we understand God not as some abstract concept, not as some idea that we think about, but as a person, as an individual who revealed himself to us. So again, we'll be in John chapter one. This is where I want to start tonight. It'll be on the screens as well. John chapter one and verse one says this. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So John begins his gospel, his story about Jesus's life, not with the birth of Jesus, not with the genealogy of Jesus, but all the way back in the beginning. If you know the Bible well, you'll know this is how the very very first words of the Bible begin. Genesis chapter one and verse one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word. That the word, this word here that comes to us through the Greek, and if you don't know, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and it's translated into English here, but it's so interesting. The word here in Greek is the word logos. The word logos. The word logos is this word for word. It's this idea of ideas. We actually use logos everywhere in our vocabulary. You're just not aware that we always do. Like if you've ever studied or taken a biology class, that is the logos, that is the ology, and then it's the study of life. Astrology is the study of the stars, right? Like all of these things are the study of something. The logos is the word. It's the idea. And here's what the ancient Greeks believed. Here's what the first people to ever read these words thought. When John wrote this in the ancient context, they believed in a logos. The logos was an impersonal, abstract, powerful idea that was behind the universe. 
It wasn't a personal being you interacted with. It wasn't an individual you could get to know. It was the force that held the universe together. It's not a complete parallel, but if you think of Star Wars, right? There's a force, right? But the force isn't like a buddy. They're not like, hey, force. And the force is like, hey. You know, like there's no personal relationship with the force. It's just this power you can kind of absorb and use and be in touch with, but there's no person behind it. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about this word. But here's what's so wild about what the Christian faith does. See, the Christian faith is going to suggest that there is a power that is behind the universe. The Christian faith is going to suggest that this all didn't just randomly happen. It wasn't like, okay, we woke up and it's all here, right? It's going to suggest there's intelligence behind the universe. Uh, And yet it's also going to submit a different idea to us that was scandalous to the Jews. It was scandalous to the Greeks. It was scandalous to everyone who read the first story about Jesus and everyone who encountered the message of Jesus. See, this is the Christmas story. The Christmas story is that this word, this powerful force behind the universe actually comes to us as a baby child and lives among the world. This is the remarkable story of the Christian faith. It is the remarkable story of Christmas. The Christmas story is that there is a God it reveals to us who is both infinitely powerful and intimately present. Like this is the story of Christmas. This infinitely powerful God who created the universe, who created all things, who sustains all things, who spoke the earth into existence steps into human history to live with us. And tonight I'm here to proclaim a God to you that you would understand through Jesus, who is infinitely powerful and intimately present. These are the two realities of our God that we can never let go of. Like I need someone here to snap out of it and realize that God is infinitely powerful and he's not to be trifled with. I think some of us take God so lightly. He is such a small thing to us. God will not be mocked. God will not be belittled. God will not be set aside. He will not be doubted. He will show himself to be strong in all things. He is infinitely powerful. He's not afraid of your problems. He's not afraid of the problems of this church, the problems of our nation, or the problems of our world. He is infinitely powerful beyond anything you can imagine. And yet don't mistake me here. That same God is intimately present. Like he's closer to you than your very breath right now. He he was there when you were thinking about all the things you had to do this morning, when you were awake and getting dressed and getting ready for the day. He was there. He was present with you. He, He was there when you were insecure earlier today about how you looked or how you sounded in that meeting or how you looked in class. He he was there when you were trying to solve that problem this afternoon. He was there when you were driving up. He's present in this space right now. Like when we talk about God, it's not some God who's up there in heaven and we hope that someday he might hear us if we're loud enough. It's a God who's close enough to hear your very breath. Infinitely powerful, intimately present. This is what the story of Christmas shows us. It goes on this way in verse two, or actually the back half of verse two. It says he was with God in the beginning. Verse three tells us this. It says that all things, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing that was made has been made. So here's what I want to submit to you right now. It says that in the beginning it was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's suggesting this person of Jesus was with God in the very beginning. And then here's what it's going to go on to tell us. Right at the beginning, God creates all things. And that God who created all things was Jesus. Jesus is the creator God, the one who creates all things that exist in this world. Like you may have made something, you may have put something together in your life, but you've never created anything out of nothing. And that's what our God does. And here's what we need to think about tonight. We need to think about this God who creates. We need to think about the creator God. And here's what I'm convinced of. I think if we don't get the idea of God and his creation and him as the creator right, we'll ultimately get God all wrong. Uh, I just want to put it to you this way. Like so many of the errors that people make about God 
So many of the mistakes people make about who God is and what he's all about, and what he wants for their life, comes from the misunderstanding of the relationship between the creation and the creator of that creation. So I want to talk to you tonight uh, in light of this, that through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing that was made that has been made. I want to talk to you tonight about three errors when it comes to God and his creation. I want to talk about three mistakes, three heresies, three things that people get wrong when they think about God and his creation. Three things. Here's the first. It's a word some of you may have never heard of before, but I want you to understand it tonight. The first is something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism suggests this, that the universe is evil. Gnosticism actually comes from the Greek word gnosis. It was an ancient heresy in the ancient world where people started to believe parts of the Christian story, but actually started to believe a different thing. They believed salvation wasn't done through Jesus and the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. That wasn't where salvation was found. Salvation was found through having a secret knowledge. And one of the key parts of Gnosticism was this dualism that said created stuff in the world is bad. Spiritual stuff is good. That the created order, the world God has made, this, this whole world out here is wicked and bad and awful. True salvation is not found somewhere outside of you. True salvation is found inside yourself. Now, I think it's really possible to sit here uh, on what, what is it, December 3rd? And we're just kind of in 2020. We're like, cool, ancient heresy. Like that's some nerdy Bible talk, but it has nothing to do with my life. But here's what I just always want to put before you. There's really no new heresies and no new mistakes when it comes to God. Okay? It's not like we've come up with new ways of thinking of God wrong. It's like the same ways over and over and over again. Let me read to you some of the core tenets of Gnosticism and see if you recognize them at all. Freedom is found through rejecting the natural order and choosing what seems right to you. Freedom is found not by looking out to anyone else, but to looking inside of yourself and creating your own reality and choosing your own meaning. Like, you recognize that at all? You recognize that on your college campus? Recognize that on like the really like philosophical friend of yours who's like, I just really believe we're all our own universes. And you're like, what? <laughs> but like people say stuff like that. They're like, I don't believe God is out there. I believe he's in here. And you know, you're like, what? Like, so, so, so listen, so many of the errors of Gnosticism have just rebranded themselves in this kind of new age spirituality. You're the God of the universe that's inside of you. You don't need God out there. You need the salvation that comes from within. When you need help, just look into your inner self. Like, listen, it just repeats itself over and over and over again. And here's what happens in Gnosticism. Gnosticism says the world out there, all the stuff out there is evil. Real salvation is found inside of yourself in the real spiritual place. And as Christians, we got to reject that. We gotta say like, no, that's not the story. The story isn't that we're living in this wicked, evil world. And if I just get more into myself, that'll lead to salvation. Have you ever met someone who gets right way into themselves and their life has actually flourished? You ever met someone who's going to find themselves and then they actually do? No, this doesn't happen. What happens is we're like, I'm gonna find myself. And you're like, good luck, right? <laughs> but, but, but this is the belief that gets fed to us. Like out there is evil. What you really need to do is focus on yourself because salvation comes from within. This is Gnosticism. It is wrong. It is heresy. And it will lead you astray. Here's the second thing that goes wrong. Second error we make when it comes to God and his creation, the word who created all things. It's pantheism. Pantheism says the universe is divine. Creation is divine. And before this sounds like some silly thing, you're like, I've never met a pantheist. You sure have. They just don't call themselves that. Like, like, you ever notice how often we talk about Mother Earth as if Mother Earth has any personality? Yeah, Mother Earth is mad at us 
Mother Earth is getting a revenge. Like literally today, this was in the news. Some famous person's like, yep, Mother Earth's giving us our payback for what we did. Oh yeah? Mother Earth has like a personality. Mother Earth has a brain. Mother Earth has a will and force behind it. But this is what happens. Like we start to speak of creation as if creation itself has a will, has a purpose, has sovereignty over us. Uh, like, it's not just the Mother Earth thing. It's like the, even the word universe. Like, just tell me if you've ever heard anyone say anything like this, or maybe I'm adding some of you here. It says, so, so, watch this little quote. So I love you because the entire universe conspired me to help me find you. Right? Like, it's like the universe brought us together. I was just lost. And then the universe brought us together. Or then, like, 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 like maybe in a more flippant way, uh, this next one. Quick question. Why does the universe hate me so much? And you're like, oh, that's a bummer. But if someone ever says that, don't worry. All you have to do is give that. Just, I just happened to Google this today. And so if you've read this book and it's changed your life, too bad, I'm about to bash it. Here's a book you can give them. It's The Universe Has Your Back. That is the name of the, the book. And here's a quote from this book. It says, if you look at life through the lens of you against the world, it really will be you against the world. However, that's not reality. The reality is that you are never alone. Why am I never alone? Because God's with me? No, no, no. Here's why I'm never alone. The truth is that the universe always has your back. <sighs> Let me be really clear. If there is no God in this world, the universe does not have your back other than wanting to stab something through your back and kill you. The universe is utterly indifferent to you. The universe wants nothing to do with your good or your harm. The universe is one day, if there is no God and there is no ultimate story here, the universe will die of heat death, right? Like all atoms are moving apart. The universe will fade out, not with a bang, but with a whimper, and you will be long dead. The universe doesn't care about you. The universe doesn't love you. The universe didn't bring you a girl. The universe didn't bring you a boy. The universe doesn't hate you. The universe isn't conspiring with you. The universe is a created fact of God. And here's the shocking thing. How easily some of us use the word universe as a stand-in for God, even those of us who are Christians. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, if you know God tonight, can I just plead with you? Like I know it's funny sometimes to be like, the universe hates me. Okay, like I get it. It's a joke. I'm not trying to be like the word police here. But can you just be aware of the times when you ascribe something to the universe that's really due to God your Father? Can you just be aware of those moments? And if you're not a, a, a Christian and if you don't believe in God, can we stop pretending the universe has some plan for your life? Like if there is no God, we'll get to that, that, that's the next one in a second. If there is no God, like literally the universe does not care about you at all. You are part of the universe. You will dissolve into the universe when your body breaks down someday and there is no meaning. But here's what we do. One of the problems we do is we become pantheists without even realizing it. Everything's God. The universe is God. All things are kind of working together and they're all divine. I'm divine. You're divine. Everyone's a God. You're a God. You're a God. Like this all happens. And, and I want you to know that as silly as it sounds, it can start to be this thing where the universe starts to take the place of the God who created it. All right, here's the final error we make. The final error we make is naturalism. Naturalism. That's the universe is all there is. It's just the universe. There's nothing else. There's no other thing out there. There's no reality other than the reality we can measure with the scientific method. And believe me when I tell you, like if you grew up in this culture, you are swimming in a culture of naturalism. Like, like it is so normal to you, you don't even notice it. It is so normal to you, you have taken it for granted all the time. Like schools have every obligation to teach in such a way that is naturalist, right? 
Like if you grew up going to any school except an explicitly Christian school, you went up, you grew up going to a school that wasn't allowed to talk about God. And that might even be a good thing. I don't know. Like, I don't know whether school should like teach Christian faith. Like I want public school teachers teaching Christian faith. But here's what I know. When you're taught a worldview that doesn't involve God, you're taught a worldview that says stuff is all that matters. And then are you shocked when a generation of people grow up thinking stuff is all that matters and realize that stuff didn't actually satisfy them? Like this is naturalism. Naturalism says it's it. There's no God. And if there's no God, listen, there's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no such thing as love if there's no God, okay? If the nature, if the universe is all there is and naturalism is true, your experience of love for your mother or for your boyfriend is a total illusion made by chemicals in your brain. It's true, right? Like if, if there's no God, there's no love, there's no true peace, there's no true joy. It's just like you are a bag of chemicals walking around until you're not. That's the universe. And if you think I'm just being harsh here, let me give you actual someone to say it who's not me, who disagrees with me in every conceivable way. Most famous atheist alive, Richard Dawkins says this. He says at the bottom, there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. That's your option. Like if I'm speaking tonight to someone who's like, I don't even know if I believe in God. Hey, listen, I'm not here to force you or shame you into believing anything. I just want you to know if you're going to be consistent in the idea that there's no God, there's nothing. This is just this moment we happen to be here, happen to have consciousness. The universe is random. There's no meaning, no purpose, no good, no evil. But here's what I suspect. I suspect that even if you don't agree with the Bible or with Jesus or with all the things I'm saying tonight, you still believe in love. You still believe there's something right, good and wrong and, and beautiful things. Like you believe in all of these things. And, and so ultimately the idea of naturalism, the idea it's just the universe, there's nothing else, there's no God, isn't something anyone actually lives as if it's true. So here's the biblical worldview on creation. The biblical worldview on creation is the following. Number one, it's that creation is a good gift. It is good. It is created by God for your enjoyment, for your good. Like when you see a beautiful sunset, that's not like something you appreciate and then there's God. It's like you appreciate it because God gave you that good gift. Like creation is a good gift from God. Number two, creation is distinct from the creator. So when we talk about the universe, we're not talking about something that has force and nature and will. We're talking about something that is a gift. It is distinct from God. And then finally, creation has a purpose. Uh, like creation is not random. It's not going to go away someday. Listen, the Christian belief is not like we're here today in creation, and then we'll go away to like a floaty place in heaven someday, and the world will be destroyed. No, like creation's here for good. It's eternal. It's forever. It's not going away. This is the story of the scriptures. This is the biblical teaching on creation. And when we don't get that straight, everything else starts to get wacky and out of alignment in, in our life. Let, let me show you the next verse um, that we're going to look at. We looked at verses 1 and verses 2 and verses 3. Uh, I encourage you at some point to read 4 um, and, and onwards. It's some beautiful, beautiful scripture there. But in the interest of time, we're going to jump straight to, um, I, I think, one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The word... This impersonal, abstract, powerful force that created the universe. It says the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Like this powerful, abstract force that created the universe that no one could possibly get their mind around. It says the word became flesh. 
The, the word flesh here in the Greek is the word sarks. There's a different word in the Greek for body, which is soma. It's not that God became a body, it's that he became flesh. Flesh and tissues and mucus and hair and every little thing human beings have. And I say that not to gross you out, but I say that so you can really think. Jesus wasn't a sort of human. You ever seen paintings of Jesus? It really throws you off. Because he's like kind of human, but you're like, his skin is way too nice. You know, like, 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 like Jesus had bad hair days. Jesus had days where he woke up and his back was sore. Jesus had days where he had indigestion. Like Jesus had all of this stuff. Like he really was a human. And I think for some of us, we kind of think he's a human like, like Thor is a human, right? Like, you know, Avengers, Thor, you're like, he's like a human with long hair and big muscles, but he has some... I can't really understand what his powers are, but he seems to have some, right? We think of Jesus like this superhero type, and then there's us. But the actual truth is Jesus became Sark's flesh, just like you and me. Like Jesus had hormones. He had emotions. Jesus had to eat. Jesus had foods he liked or didn't like. Like these are the things that are not recorded in the Bible, but are absolutely true if he became Sark's human flesh, just like us. Like he experienced all of the range of emotions and feelings and experiences. If you're cold right now, guess what? Jesus has been cold. If you're hot right now, I have no idea why, but you probably have a fever and shouldn't be here. But, but Jesus has been there, right? Like he knows what it's like. And, and I think this is important for us. Like the word became flesh. It, it almost can't be overstated. And then it says the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Isn't it interesting that it didn't say like he hung out among us. Didn't say like he decided to walk among us. It said he made his dwelling among us. And the reason is because the actual Greek word behind here is the word for tent. Like the literal translation of this is actually God became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And that sounds like a funny word to say until you know, if some of you know the Old Testament scriptures well, you'll know that the exodus from Egypt, the people of God come out of Egypt, they come out of slavery and they wander around the desert for 40 years. And while they're wandering around the desert for 40 years, the presence of God goes with them. And every time they stop at a location, God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build me a tent, a tabernacle, and I'll dwell in that tent. So here's what John chapter one's telling us, that Jesus became the tabernacle among his people. He tented among them. He pitched his tent in their neighborhood. He came into their neighborhood, into their experience and their life and their problems and their drama and their issues and their political stuff. He became into the midst of that. So the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Theologian J.I. Packer says it this way, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught how to talk like any other child. That the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Like if at times the idea that the God of the universe became like an actual human baby, an actual human being who, who like had to have his diaper changed, who had to nurse on his mother's breast, who had to grow up, who had to eat, who had to sleep, who had to deal with all of the bodily functions. If at times that doesn't just like throw you and make you go, ah, oh, you're not thinking about it clearly. This is what we understand God to be. We understand God to be this infinitely powerful God who became intimately present with us because he became like us. Like, it's like if you've ever been sharing a story and you're talking about how much things have hurt or how difficult life has been, and someone's like, no, 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 I've been there, I've done that. Isn't that different than someone who's like, I have never experienced what you've experienced. Sounds like it's terrible. You're like, well, <laughs> you can't help me at all. But it's the person who's like, I've been there. I've been through divorce. I know what it's like to have to go to two households. I've been through a breakup like that, and then she cheated on you, and then she went elsewhere, or then he said this, and he, like, I've been there. I've experienced that. 
I've had that addiction. I've dealt with that struggle. I know what that insecurity is like. I've had an eating disorder. I understand this. Like when someone looks you in the eye and says, I have lived the literal same thing you've lived in my flesh, it changes the way you see them. And it gives them permission to speak into your life. This is Jesus. Jesus steps into human history experiences everything that we've experienced, knows exactly what it's like to be tempted, knows exactly what it's like to struggle, knows exactly what it's like to be tired, probably knows exactly what it's like to be listening to a sermon and be a little bored by it, okay? He knows, he knows. This is the magnificent thing about God. And we could just go on and on and on uh, about what the incarnation means for us. Let me just give you a few things with those big theological words I used earlier. Here's the first. God is omnipresent, but in Jesus, he became finite. Like, like, think about this for a moment. The God is everywhere. I said, God is everywhere. He's here. He's at your house. He's in your car. He's everywhere right now. And yet in Jesus, he became present in one spot, right? He became limited. The unlimited God became limited. Jesus was only in one place at one time. It's like Jesus had to walk over here and he wasn't also over there. Like Jesus was limited. And I think this is important for us to think about. The distinction between the God of the universe up in heaven to Jesus becoming incarnate. Here's what I think this teaches us. Like, like, like God is this unlimited God, but in Jesus, he becomes finite. And, and I think we need to realize this tonight. I hope this will make sense to you. Unlike God, we need to realize this. Unlike God, we are not unlimited. We are not unlimited. Can I tell someone tonight? You are not unlimited. And you need to stop pretending you are. Here's what us being limited means. Do you recognize, have you come to grips with the fact that you're not going to be able to watch every TV show that everyone tells you to watch? You ever had moments like that where you'd be like, you have not watched this? Oh my, you have to watch this. You have to watch this. You're like, okay, I'll put it on my list. And then someone else is like, you haven't seen this show? You will love it. No, 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 you will love it. You're like, I don't know. I didn't listen to me. I was right. You will love this. And you're like, okay. And then you try to watch the show and then you try to watch another show and you have a bunch of half done shows and then you see the people and you kind of feel guilty because you haven't watched their show. I was hanging out with someone the other day and they had a book. And it was this guy I really liked. He was reading this book. And he goes, have you read this book? It's by Francis Chan. I was like, I haven't read the book. You have not read this book? How have you not read this book? And it was like, oh, I haven't read the book. And it started to feel this like, oh, I need to read this book, right? But here's what happens. We have this temptation to start to feel like we need to be unlimited. We need to eat every food. We need to go to every restaurant. We need to show up at every party. We need to be friends with every person. We need to listen to every sermon and watch every show and watch every movie and read every book. We feel like we have to do it all. And then we have to be up and then we have to be successful and then we have to impress our parents and we have to make a lot of money. But we also have to be a good person in the community. We have to do all of it. See, ultimately, here's what I need us to understand. That God is unlimited, but you aren't. You can't do it all. You can't read every book. You can't go to every party. You can't get every college degree. You can't learn every skill. Someone needs to hear me tonight. You can't be involved in every justice issue you want to be involved in. I think sometimes there's this burden of like, oh, I got to care about this and I got to care about this and I got to care about this and I got to care about this. And then you're like, I didn't even know that was an issue. And now I got to care about all these issues, right? You can't be involved in everything. Actually, part of being a human is learning that I am limited. I only have so many hours in a day. I only have so much energy in my body. I only have so much physical ability. Like you are limited in your ability to play sports, right? You get that, Right. But like you, you can try as hard as you want. You will never play basketball like LeBron James. You will never do it. Never will. You're like, no, 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 no. I'm glad. No, you will never get there. You're limited. And actually part of finding joy in life is being able to say, I can't do it all. I'm just going to be content with what I've done. I'm not going to get to travel to all the cool places I saw my friends travel to. I'm not going to get to go to every place, see everything, be a part of everything. God is unlimited, but I as a human being 
I'm not. And the incarnation teaches us that the unlimited God becomes a limited human. Here's the next thing. It's that God is omnipotent, but in Jesus, he became vulnerable. Like you recognize that God's just like invincible, right? You can't be God. But in Jesus, Jesus gets wounded. Jesus gets killed. Jesus gets burdened. Jesus struggles. Jesus has hard days. Jesus' physical body sufferings. The scripture says he's a man of suffering, a man of burden. So like, listen, if God's omnipotent, but then Jesus becomes vulnerable, we need to understand this, that unlike God, we are not invincible. Like young people, we, we need to remind ourselves of this over and over and over again. I am not invincible. I could die tomorrow. I could die on my way home tonight in a car accident, right? Like I am not invincible and I need to live like that's true. I need to walk in wisdom as if that's true, that I am not invincible. We need to understand that our physical bodies can be bruised just like Jesus. But listen, you are not invincible. You can be wounded by the people closest to you, right? And I think sometimes when we get wounded, we are so shocked. When we get wounded by our mom, by our sister, by the boyfriend that we thought loved us, by the girlfriend that said she'd never leave us. Like when we get wounded by those people, we need to remember that we are not invincible. We need to expect the fact that in this life, we are going to get wounded, that we are going to get hurt, that there are going to be times where we are in pain. I think some of us have gotten so inculcated into the idea that if we just walk with Jesus and we just live the right way, you'll never have pain. But that's not the case. You can be wounded. You can be hurt. You can be killed. Sometimes you just get exhausted. Like you're not this invincible, unlimited person. Sometimes the best, most holy thing you could possibly do, I'm going to like shock some of you with this, is go to bed by 9.30, right? It's go to bed because you're not like God. If the Bible says that God never slumbers, never sleeps. That's not you. See, God is invincible. God is unlimited, but that's not the case for you. The incarnation of Jesus is the unlimited, invincible God becoming vulnerable. And then finally is this, that God is omniscient, but in Jesus became limited in his knowledge. Like there's actually a moment of his, knowledge, of his ministry where Jesus says, I don't even know the time the son will return. Only the father knows that. Like, like he is not all knowing in that moment. He, there's at least something that God knows that he doesn't know. And I think this is important for us to realize, unlike God, we can't know everything. We don't know everything. What's gonna happen next month with COVID? I don't know. Like I've spent the last eight months pretending to know. Can I tell you? I have no idea. Can I tell you? I don't know all the things I wish I knew. And there are these frustrating moments in my life where I don't know the answer to something and I feel like I should know the answer to something, but part of what it means to be human in light of the incarnation is to understand that God is the one who knows everything, not me. But like, I have to wonder how many of you sat around the kitchen table with your family this last week, picking apart the brain of someone who you don't really know what's going on inside their mind. Like discussing what your mom was really thinking as if you really knew. Discussing what your brother really was up to, even though he said he was doing something else. Discussing it as if you really knew. Like I think so much of our lives, we think we need to have the answer to every question. But ultimately, I think part of what it means to be human in light of a God who is all-knowing, knowing that we are not God, is the capacity to say, I don't know. So listen, I want to be blunt with some of you tonight. I want to say four words to some of you. And maybe tonight, this is the only reason you got sent here. The only reason the Holy Spirit moved you out here, put you in a jacket and bundled up in a blanket so you could come out here to hear these four words. Someone hear me on this. You are not God. You're not. You're not God. You're not omnipotent. You're not all-powerful. You're not all-present. You're not all-knowing. You are not God. And listen, here's why this matters. The reason you're so stressed out all the time is because you keep forgetting this. 
You keep forgetting that you're not God. I keep forgetting that I'm not God. When someone says, you gotta read that book, you gotta read this documentary. There was like a season this fall where it was like documentary season apparently in America and everyone had a documentary I was supposed to watch. And I actually started by being like, oh, that's cool, I added it to the list. I got up to like eight documentaries and I got to this place of being like so stressed out. I was like, I gotta watch the documentaries. No, I don't. No, I don't. Why? Because I'm limited. I'm not God. I don't have unlimited time. Maybe in eternity, I'll watch all the documentaries, but not right now because I'm limited. I'm limited. I've spent so much time hanging out with family members and friends talking about someone else who wasn't even in the room and we're trying to understand what's going on in their mind. We're trying to understand what their real motivations are. And it stresses us out and overwhelms us, but it shouldn't because we just, just go, we're not God. We don't know. We don't know why that's the case. We don't know why they do this. We don't know everything. I need to stop stressing out about this. Like, I think for some of us, the reason we're so stressed out and worried all the time is because we become convinced that we have to be everywhere at once. We have to do everything. We have to have the power over everything. And understanding that God became human flesh and took on a limited nature just like us helps release us from the idea that we need to be God and allows God to be God and us to be us. Verse 14 goes on this way. It says, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. He pitched his tent among us. And then it says this, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. It says the word glory here in the Greek word, that, that word glory is the word doxa. It's the word glory in Greek is the word doxa. The word in Hebrew is the word kavod. Both, both of them have this and I, our screen's messed up. Okay, it's, uh, no, they're not. Okay, good. All right, the biblical word for glory um, has the root meaning of weight or heaviness. And I think this is an interesting thing. Like when we talk about the glory of God, when we talk about the glory of the one and only son, it has this meaning and the same word means root. The root word here means weight or heaviness, which sounds kind of odd, right? Like it sounds a little bit odd that, that like weight and heaviness would have anything to do with glory. But you also understand that we use this kind of wording all the time. When something's really important to us, when something's really significant in your life, we talk about, oh, that seems really heavy for you. Well, like that's a really weighty matter. When something's insignificant to us, when someone's insignificant to us, we talk about like that person is dead weight. Like they're not really that important to us. When we talk about a person who like commands the attention of a room, we say they have gravitas. Like they have weight, they have gravity to them. They draw people in. So, so the idea of when it says we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only father, his doxa, his kavod, is this idea that God has this weight, this heaviness about him that should sit upon us. But, but then here's the reality I think um, we encounter when we're honest about what we see in many churches. And if we're not careful, even in our own. Um, there, there's a guy named David Wells who says this. He says, the reality of God lies lightly on the American church. And he says, the reality of God lies lightly on the American church. And here's what he means. There's not like a weight of God. There's not a heaviness about God. There's not a significance about God. God is someone we believe in. It's someone we talk about. It's someone we sing to. But like the reality and weight of God in our life does not sit heavy upon us. And I remember reading this and not really understanding what he meant. But then I started to think of churches I've been at. Started to think of my own heart at times. Started to think of churches I've been at where the message and the pastor gets up and he's preaching and he's primarily talking about you. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to a church like this or maybe heard a sermon like this where the pastor gets up and starts preaching and the primary message is not about how good God is, but about how awesome you are. 
and you are, and you, and you, and you, and you are amazing, right? Like that's the whole sermon. And the sermon's like, you want to believe in God? That's old fashioned. God believes in you. And everyone's like, me! <laughs> and here's what I believe. But like if you're in a church where the primary message is about how awesome you are, the reality of God rests lightly there. Rest lightly. But like if you go off to college and you're part of a church and the whole sermon is always about how awesome you are and you're enough and you can do it and you go girl and you go be strong and you go do it. Like if the whole message is about you, the reality of God rests lightly there. Like, listen, if you go to a church and the primary thing they're talking about is the news of the day or the politics of the day, and it's indistinguishable from Fox News or MSNBC, if that's the church you're going to, and there's like a God-flavored twist on all of it, the reality of God sits lightly there. It does. Like a church that is obsessed with politics and politicians becomes a place where God doesn't have weight. A church that is obsessed, like if you ever go to church and the primary thing is like, here's how to behave and you better shape up and here's how you live a moral life and if you don't live how I say, you're going to hell. Like the reality of God rests lightly there. And Calvary, like I want every eye on me right now. May that never be said of us. May it never be said that we are a place where the reality of God rests lightly on us. May it never be said that we are a place that is flippant toward God. May our worship never be flippant. May our Bible study never be flippant. When we come into this place, when we leave this place, may there be a reverence that the reality of God sits upon us in this place. John 1.14 says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. May the reality of God, the glory of God, rest heavy on this place here. Here's how it closes the last thing we'll look at tonight. It says, He, this is Jesus, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, So we look at Jesus and here's how Jesus's life is summed up. Jesus's life is summed up with these two words that John chooses to use here. And the two words here are grace and truth. The two words that describe Jesus best are grace and truth. And I said that if we have a Bethlehem-shaped theology to understand God through the lens of Jesus Christ and his son in this earth, living in this world, when we look at Jesus, we understand God. Here's how Jesus's life is summed up in John chapter one and verse 14. It's that we have seen him. He is full of glory and he's full of two things, grace and truth, grace and truth. Like ultimately what's God like? God is full of grace and God is full of truth. And we need to understand those two things about God, that God is a gracious God. He loves us. He is for us. He is with us. He is kind. He is loving. And at the same time, he is full of truth and holiness and justice, and he will never waver from that. And if we want to be the type of people who are living and loving like Jesus, the type of people who are becoming like God, here's what I'm convinced of. Um, We need to have both grace and truth in our own approach to people. Look, let me speak to you. If you've got people in your life that you're helping, that you're serving, that you're walking with, roommates, sisters, brothers, moms, people you're mentoring, here's what I'm convinced of. Write this down. That without both grace and truth, you will harm people. Without both grace and truth, you will end up harming people. If you're trying to help someone and you don't have both grace and truth, you will ultimately bring them harm. If you're trying to help someone and you're just the truth person and you're like, here's what I do. I walk into the room and I tell them what's true and I yell at them. And I say, do better. Here's what you've become. You become this person who is so filled with truth, you are devoid of grace entirely. You have no kindness, you have no mercy, you have no grace, you have no goodness toward the person, no affection, and you will not help them, you will only harm them. And the reason I know you will harm them is because you have been harmed by people who only have truth, right? You've been harmed by those people. The people who don't care about you, don't even like you, and don't even seem to want the best for you. They just want to tell you what's true. They just want to dunk on you and show how right they are. Those people have never helped you. They've only harmed you. But let me speak to the other crowd. 
Like if all you have is grace and you have no truth, it might seem like you're helping them. It might even seem like you're being a buddy to them, but you're actually bringing them harm. But like, listen, if you've got a roommate who's drinking too much, you saying it's not a big deal and we love you and we're for you and it's not a big deal, we'll help you out here. And you are enabling them, you are bringing them harm. If you've got a roommate who's in a relationship that's an absolute disaster, you are not helping them by not speaking the truth to them. You are not helping them by willing them. It's like this metaphor I always use, like your buddy's walking off a cliff and he's about to tumble to his death and you're like, well, it's his life. I don't want to control him. Like he'll do him and he'll be fun. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to control. Like I don't want to be that person. You're going to harm them. Like I need you to hear me so clearly. If you don't have grace and you don't have truth, you will bring harm to people. But if you have both grace and truth on your side, you will help people. You will serve people. You will bless people. If you ever go into a difficult conversation, if you ever go into an awkward or tense moment in your work, in your family, this Christmas, if you go home to roommates tonight and you are saying, I'm fully committed to grace and truth in this moment, you will help people. And why do I know you will help people? The reason I know you will help people is because what Jesus models for us is a life filled with grace and truth. And the peak of Jesus's life, the peak of that grace and truth comes to us, not through any miracles he did or any teachings he gave, not through any times he healed someone. The real moment that Jesus models grace and truth for us is this. It's the cross. The cross of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's grace and God's truth. The ultimate expression of God's truth. The truth of the cross is that you are a sinner. Someone needs to hear that tonight, that you are a sinner before a holy God. It's not that you stumbled sometimes or made some mistakes. It's that you have sinned and rebelled against the God of the universe. And in the cross, Jesus is willing to say that your life, your sin is so significant that I deserve to die for you. On the cross, Jesus is filled with truth, but he is also filled with grace. Grace for your mistakes and grace for your sin and grace for your rebellion and grace for your addictions and grace for your habits and grace for your patterns and grace for your past. See, the cross of Jesus Christ is where the truth and the grace of God collide. And that's what God is ultimately like. See, tonight I began telling you that we wanted to have a Bethlehem-shaped theology. And Bethlehem is ultimately going to lead us to the cross of Jesus Christ to show us what God is ultimately like. The ultimate display of what God is like in this world is found on the cross, where Jesus Christ recognized the truth of your sin, but also gave himself freely because of the grace of God shown in Jesus. That's who God is, full of grace, full of truth, giving his life. For you. That's the kind of God we worship. That's the kind of God Jesus shows us this Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Um, thanks for the opportunity to open your word, to think about you, to consider the truths of your scripture. God, I pray for the person who doesn't actually know you tonight. Like they've shown up here. They've even come here a few times, but they don't actually know you yet. God, I pray they would know when they leave tonight just how good and how mighty and how strong you are. God, I pray that they wouldn't leave here without a sense of your weight, the heaviness of your glory. May that glory fall upon this place tonight. Fill our hearts with a sense of your glory and your grandeur and your goodness. Fill our hearts with a sense of how intimately present you are with us tonight. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your truth. Don't let any of us leave here tonight without being radically transformed by the Holy Spirit that brings both deep into our hearts. So God, as we worship you, as we sing, may we sing not to an abstract God we would never understand, but to a God who's revealed to us fully and finally in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.